Do you want to capture meaningful conversations that you care about? Spotify for Podcasters allows you to make a podcast super effortlessly, distribute it automatically everywhere, completely free, and even earn money doing it. Did I say free while making money? What happened to capitalism? Use your phone or computer, hit press record, upload, and start creating today. You can also monetize your podcast super effortlessly through features like ads and subscriptions through the platform. If you have been following the Discover More journey, you know that I've been using Spotify for Podcasters since 2020. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters. Spotify.com slash podcasters to start creating immediately. An exorcist is trained to be a skeptic. Technically, I should be the last person in the room to believe that somebody is truly dealing with demonic influences. Every other possible explanation for what's taking place in the life of the person needs to be exhausted. I believe the church would cause greater harm if the church labels someone as being possessed and that label prevents them from getting the true help that they need, either from the mental health profession or from their medical doctor. Welcome to Discover More. My name is Benoit Kim, a former policymaker turned psychotherapist. Today's conversation will test your conventional understanding of what you think you know so I invite you to stay open-minded and think for yourself. This week's guest is Father Vincent Lambert. Father Vincent is an intellectual giant, one of the few officially designated exorcists in the United States, and an active educator about exorcism and mental illness. Father Vincent has been featured on Vice, Fox, ABC News, the Patrick Bed David podcast, to name a few. You can expect to learn about the reality behind exorcism, the psychiatric and medical consultations involved in the exorcist process, who the devil is, the relationship between exorcism and mental illness, and much, much more. On other news, our show is officially an Apple Podcast Top 100 Podcast in the United States. So please leave us a 5-star review and subscribe to help bringing on more fascinating experts. Please enjoy the wildest conversations I have ever had. Before the episode, here is the sponsor of the week. How many times do you have to switch stations to find the music you like? Us too. Which is why we've created Cool.fm. The perfect blend of adult hits, modern country, and your favorite classics. Cool.fm is accessible on all mobile platforms and smart devices, so you can multitask and listen to the music you like best. Available online at Cool.fm, that's K-E-W-L.fm, and on all mobile and smart devices. Internet radio at its best. Cool.fm. Now, please enjoy my conversation with the one and only Father Vincent Lambert. Discover more, Discover more is a show, is a show. for independent thinkers by independent thinkers. Father Vincent Lambert, welcome to the show. Thank you, Benoit. It's good to be with you today. So I know in the Patrick Bad David's podcast, you talked about the origin story of you becoming an exorcist and you being in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> <laughs> But could you share why the Roman Catholic branch decided to keep the exorcist tradition going strongly despite being only 12 at the time? Because 12 is a tiny number by every metrics. Yes. So as you mentioned, in 2005, I was appointed by my bishop 
to do this ministry for the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. Indianapolis has always had a priest designated in this role, and in 2005, that priest passed away. Ironically, he was the pastor of the uh, parish where I attended grade school. So never imagine one day that I would inherit a job that he had. And even the bishop, when he appointed me, told me that he wasn't quite sure what he was asking me to do. But he said, we've always had a priest in this role, and he wanted to continue that continuity. So many dioceses throughout the United States discontinued having an exorcist after the uh, Second Vatican Council, which was held from 1962 to 1965. So many dioceses thought perhaps it was no longer needed. But Indianapolis is one of the few dioceses that decided to always keep a priest in this ministerial role. So I sense a theme of tradition. Yes. So I guess a quick follow-up question then would be that, Father Vince, how do you view tradition? Because not all traditions are good, even though I don't like the dichotomy of good and bad, right? Since not all things are good, not all things are bad. What sort of traditions need to be kept and what sort of tradition needs to be updated tying to this modern news that Pope Francis recently declared that homosexuality and church needs to do more to support these roles for actively mm -hmm. battling and who want to follow the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I think the importance of tradition when it comes to exorcism would be an indication that the church is listening. It might even echo the comment you just made about Pope Francis that because when people perceive the church is not listening is when people walk away. So to me, the importance of having an exorcist, again, is reminding people that the church is listening and wants to help guide them through whatever they are experiencing. Certainly just because somebody believes they're dealing with some type of demonic episode in their life doesn't mean that is necessarily the case. But by having a priest designated, it does let people know that there's a place that they can go to. Now, I will say, too, that as an exorcist, I chose to be publicly known. Many of the exorcists are not publicly known, but I've always thought it would be important that people know who the person is that they could reach out to for help. Because if you don't know who to reach out to, then perhaps you're going to go away and look for answers that the church herself can provide to people. And then ultimately, the answers that the church provides, people need to think what they're going to do with those answers, whether they'll choose to listen or look elsewhere. But again, I think the most important reason that my appointment is important is to let people know that they can be heard. That is great. So let's go into the bread and butter of today's conversation, Father Vince. What are the sets of criterias to even become an exorcist? I know that your promotion that you joked about in Pat <laughs> Patrick by David's podcast but like that synchronistic or serendipity aside of just the timing, wrong place at the wrong time. Aside from that, but are there like a set criteria and how do you even become an exorcist if you want to? In the Catholic tradition, it's the local bishop that technically is the exorcist. So he has that role by virtue of his office. You know, the Catholic Church believes that the bishops are the successors to the apostles. And when Jesus sent the apostles out, he gave them authority over all unclean spirits. So in that sense of continuity, the sense of tradition, the bishop is the exorcist, and then the church says that it, at his discretion, he can appoint one or more of his priests to exercise this ministry in his name. 
So as an exorcist, I'm not appointed for the Universal Church. I'm only appointed for the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. For me to function outside of the Archdiocese, I would have to have permission from another bishop. But again, the bishop is the one who has that role. The bishop that appointed me, actually, I knew him before I was even ordained a priest. He was the rector of uh, St. Minard College in southern Indiana, operated by the Benedictine Fathers. So he was a Benedictine monk. He was in the rector of the seminary. So him and I had a long history. So 14 years into my priesthood, uh, he ended up becoming the archbishop in Indianapolis, and then he's the one who appointed me. And I think the appointment more than likely was because he knew me. He knew me during my years of formation and training in the seminary. And he even told me that he wanted a priest who believed in the reality of evil, but not a priest that would be too quick to believe that someone who came to me, who thought they were dealing with the forces of evil, that that was actually the case. An exorcist is trained to be a skeptic. Technically, I should be the last person in the room to believe that somebody is truly dealing with demonic influences. Every other possible explanation for what's taking place in the life of the person needs to be exhausted. I believe the church would cause greater harm if the church labels someone as being possessed, and that label prevents them from getting the true help that they need, either from the mental health profession or from their medical doctor. I think I want to segue into this question, which I think would allow us to go a lot deeper into what you talked about, the rigorous vetting process that is involved in even being dispatched or being called to exercise a allegedly demonic possessions or demonic episodes. Because I'm a psychotherapist, so I'm a social scientist by practice. So rigor and the accurate information matters. Like how the medical professions are called and all these other interconnected assessments that are required even before you do what you're going to do. So in the United States, we follow a very strict protocol. And the number one step of the protocol would be for the person to have some type of psychiatric evaluation, either by a psychiatrist or a psychologist, basically asking these experts in the mental health field, is there something about this person's condition that is outside of your scope or understanding? Now, I'm not asking the psychiatrist, do you think this person is possessed? No. You know, I, I would make that determination. But again, I want the best possible information. You know, many people, perhaps in the mental health field, may not readily believe in the possibility that what somebody is dealing with is of a spiritual nature. And that's okay, because I'm not really looking for someone, you know, to pat me on the back or reaffirm something that I might be sensing. In fact, if someone is kind of doubtful about these things, that actually proves to be very helpful. And then step two of the protocol would be for the person to have a physical examination by a medical doctor. Again, wanting to know, is there a possible physical cause for what this person is experiencing in their life? So again, these experts, I'm looking for them to weigh in. You know, they have a great knowledge in the area of mental health, in physical health. You know, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a medical doctor. So I want to work together with these experts to determine is what this person experiencing, is it of a mental health issue, is it physical, and then I would weigh in on whether or not I truly believe it's spiritual. So again, I want to work together. I believe that it's important 
for a psychiatrist, psychologist, a medical doctor, and the priest to work together to come to a conclusion about what a person is truly suffering. Because again, it should be to give them the true help that they need. So why is it so important for you, Father Vince, to be an healthy skeptic? Because I think there's a lot of people out there that if they're suffering from maybe a physical or a mental health issue, they might self-diagnose. There's many people that by the time they contact me, and I will say because I'm publicly known, I currently receive about 3,500 requests a year. Oh my, oh my goodness. From people who believe they're dealing with the demonic. So it is good to have a healthy skepticism. And the majority of these people that contact me have already self-diagnosed. Many of them believe that they're dealing with the demonic. And it can be very difficult in working with these people because they may not accept the fact that it's not something spiritual. And unfortunately, in today's world, people can find someone to validate whatever they believe is occurring in their life. I've worked with many people where it was determined that it was not of a spiritual nature and that I encourage folks to get a, a psychiatrist, see a counselor, and it would even help set that up with people. But because they were convinced it was possession, they simply ignored that and then found someone who validated what they believed to be the case. And unfortunately, in those situations, I think it takes a person who is broken and it breaks them even more. That comes down to like psychological phenomenon called confirmation bias. When you really uphold a certain belief, you're going to seek evidence and air quote facts yeah. to support that belief. In this case, self-diagnosing based on Google University. So you're saying that you can't trust everything on the internet? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Yeah, that's interesting. So quick question. I'm curious. So during your multidiscipline, like multidisciplinary collaborations with medical professionals, psychiatrists, psychologists who are the foremost expertise, like experts in their subject matter. Do you have any examples during your work history that you've not convinced, but witnessed some of these experts in the medical realm who like exorcism? Yeah, right. That's just something made up a fiction from the movies, Hollywood, whatever, into like, holy crap, Father Vince, something's <laughs> there. I don't know what it is, but I can't explain that scientifically. I have had that happen, and I've had the reverse happen, too. So speaking of the reverse, there was a gentleman who reached out to me, and his priest referred him to me. He had already been diagnosed as suffering and dealing with schizophrenia, and he had a psychiatrist and a caseworker. So I met with him and determined that it really wasn't of his spiritual nature. But I didn't want to simply say, well, it's not spiritual, be on your way. So I scheduled an appointment. So myself, him, his psychiatrist and caseworker, we sat down together, and I told him that, in my opinion, he was not possessed. And the psychiatrist looked at him and said to the gentleman, Father says that you're not possessed. What is your response? And his response was actually rather interesting. He said, I'm disappointed. And then he said to the psychiatrist, you can put a label on me and tell me that I'm schizophrenic, but you can't tell me why. If it was the devil, I would have had my why. And then I've had other cases, you know, the complete reverse, where the uh, psychiatrist will say to me, I have no explanation for why this person is going through what they're going through. 
the label of being a you know schizophrenia, dealing with bipolar, multiple personalities, whatever it might be, none of those classifications can be applied to this person. And some of these folks were even, you know, non-believers, if you will, didn't really accept the possibility that it was something spiritual. That's crazy because as you were just talking about that, I heard the church bell ring in the background. <laughs> <laughs> so very, very thematic. Sounds like we have the blessing of God for this conversation. So that's so fascinating. So like, what is your role during this Eroquot conversion process? If you have the opportunity to observe either skeptics becoming not believer, but at least are willing to entertain the possibility that this is not of psychiatric illness related or vice versa. Like, do you try to lean into that and provide educations? Do you try to advocate or are you more of a listener? Like, what is your role during this conversion process? My role really is to, uh, to listen. You know, in these situations, I'm not out to, you know, proselytize anyone or that type of thing. I really want to work with a person who is uh, suffering and provide some explanation for what they're dealing with, and then also to provide some form of remedy through the prayers of the church. So really, my role is, you know, one of the key words might be humility, to kind of operate in the background, so to speak, and then to recognize that somebody truly does need help from the church, and then provide that. This is fascinating. So Let's uh, go down a little bit deeper. So you've alluded to the terminology spiritual nature multiple times in the last like 20 minutes or so. Mm -hmm. So I want to create a space for you to maybe contextualize or recontextualize some of the terminology since in 2023, spirituality has become a marketplace, just another <laughs> marketing tool for the capitalism to make more money. Even podcasting is part of that equation, unfortunately. What is spiritual nature? And how is that different from psychiatric or psychological nature? And what are some of the protocols or assessment tools, as you will, that you use to make sure that this is of this demonic and or spiritual nature uh, that you're dealing with? I think when it comes to things of a spiritual nature, we recognize that what somebody is going through is external, whereas if something is coming due to maybe a mental health issue that it's internal, so to speak. So it's coming from within, maybe somebody is struggling in their thought process and whatnot. But when I say that something is a spiritual nature, it's external. And when we speak of the spiritual realm, at least from the Catholic perspective, we would think of angelic creatures, either those that are good angels or bad angels, fallen angels. So again, when it comes to spiritual, the question is, did somebody receive some external influence of evil in their life that has caused a level of brokenness and they're seeking healing? You know, exorcism at its very core is a prayer. You know, people always perhaps have images of movies and things that they've seen, but exorcism really is a prayer asking God to heal and put together the brokenness, the pieces that people are dealing with in their life so that they can be whole and complete once again to truly live out the wonderful gift of life that God has given to us. And again, it would be spiritual forces of an evil nature. Some people might talk about 
you know, negative energy and things like that. When I hear those terms, I really think of those in terms of demonic spirits that are attempting to um, fracture and break a person's life. In a lot of your interviews and conversations, since as we had talked about in the introductions, you're extremely extensively widely covered, which makes sense because it's such a little known and controversial topic to a lot of folks. You allude to this concept, pathways, to the spiritual realm or the pathways. In other words, invitation for the demonic presence. Uh, can you elaborate what that is and just any directions you want to take? Because I think that's a very fascinating and very integral concept to the entire exorcism. So that protocol that I was mentioning earlier about having the evaluation from a mental health expert and then a medical doctor, step three of that protocol would be to meet with a person and do an intake questionnaire. And that questionnaire is really trying to focus on what was the entry point for the connection with demonic spirits into this person's life. You know, for the average Christian, demonic forces are nothing we have to worry about. If we're living out the ordinary aspects of our faith, you know, from a traditional perspective, if one is going to church, if they're praying, they're reading the Bible, the devil is already on the run. So there's nothing extraordinary that we need to do. But it does, you know, there are instances where people are not living out the ordinary aspects of their faith. And perhaps by not doing that, they create an entry point for the demonic into their life. Some examples might be ties to the occult. Maybe people get fixated on things that have to do with the entertainment industry. You think of Halloween, certain types of movies and literature. The demonic can play on a person's memory and imagination, so we have to be cautious about the types of images and thoughts that we're putting into our heads. If they are of a strong demonic influence, I'm not saying that somebody will get possessed, but it does give an avenue for the demonic to get a foothold into a person's life. Other examples would be uh, being cursed. I like to tell people that curses are only effective if we're weak in our faith. We can't control the practices of what other people do. But if we're living out our faith, you know, St. Paul in his letter to the Ephesians talks about putting on the full armor of Christ. So if we're living out our faith, we have nothing to fear. Even if somebody's trying to send a curse, spell, hex us, whatever it might be, it will prove to be ineffective. Other entry points would be cultivating relationships with demons, dedicating one's life to a demon. Uh, broken relationships that are not dealt with in a healthy manner. You know, we all deal with brokenness in our lives, but how we deal with it does seem to matter. You know, if we have a problem with a family member or a friend and we give in to anger and bitterness and revenge and all of those types of things, those are the very things the demonic would feed on in our lives. So when we deal with brokenness, we need to try to find a healthy way to deal with that, that brings a sense of wholeness rather than a bunch of bits and broken pieces, which is what the devil would absolutely love. The final one I would mention is abuse. Abuse is rampant, unfortunately, in our society. It's rampant in the church. We've all seen that in recent years. And, and I'm not saying that because somebody is abused, they get possessed. But abuse causes people maybe to turn away from God Maybe they'll say that, you know, where was God in the midst of all of this? 
And that's exactly what the devil would love, is that people would turn away from God, reject God, and maybe blame God for what they've experienced in their life. And I have worked with people in the area of abuse where when they turned away from God, they turned away from the church, then they turned to the world of the occult, where people involved in occult practices said that they could help people put their the pieces of their life back together. But in reality, they only found themselves broken even more. Reminds me of Nietzsche, course, famous philosopher who declared God is dead in the rise of nihilism. What a lot of people don't know is that he didn't declare it in happiness, jolly. I was like, yes, God is dead. That was not the case. He was in deep, deep despair. Mm -hmm. And he declared that God is dead in this nihilism and just hopelessness, losing the meaning of life. And he cautions against us. And now we're literally in that era where because Eric quote, God is dead, in this case, the role of God is dead in a lot of people's lives, that death of God becomes the rise of new God, which is us, our ego. Yeah. And we put us at the frontier of our pedestal versus believing in a higher being. And I do want to ask you about what you alluded to where the devil or the demons play with memories and imaginations. So I want to table that really quickly. And I want to ask you to contextualize what are these demons they're alluding to and what are they? And before I answer that question, I, I want to make another quick comment, that notion about God is dead. And it might be that our concept of God is dead. You know, I think most of us grow up with some type of concept of who or what God is. And when God doesn't fit our expectations, then we act as if God doesn't exist or God is no longer relevant. You know, I, I like to ask children a lot to draw me a picture of God because I feel like they haven't been tainted so much by the world today. But I think a lot of people today carry with them a misconstrued conception of God. Even when it comes to prayer, there's a lot of people who believe that prayer is something that we do in order to convince God to do something that God otherwise would not have done if we had not prayed. That somehow prayer is what we do to manipulate God to get what we want. It's like a child manipulating his or her parents in order to get what they want. And when that doesn't happen, I think people say God is dead. But I think what they're really saying is, God did not fit my concept of God Therefore, God is dead. I like that. I think it might be Tim Keller. He talks about God is not an, he's not a bodyguard guard. He's not an ATM God. He doesn't just give you what you wish. And if anything, if you turn into scriptures and Bible, I serve at high school ministry, even though I, I need to do, I need to read more Bible for sure. But he talks about, if anything, all the devotees and the firmest believers of Christ were the most prosecuted. So actually, by following this non-traditional or the path of highest resistance of being a Christian in this world, that is really, really difficult. So I agree with you that to me, prayer is just our way of communicating with God. That's it. So yeah, let's go to that question. Like, can you define what demons are? Because I feel like people use demon and devil very interchangeably. And of course, people are like, oh, the, the devil is like Lucifer, the fallen archangels, and all these different iterations of stories and arcs. But what are demons? 
And I'd love to go down to the next question after the fact. Yep. So I'll speak from a Catholic perspective on, you know, who, who is the devil? Who are these demons, evil spirits? So the notion is based on the book of Revelation that sometime before the dawn of creation, God created the angelic world. St. Augustine, writing in the 5th century, was speculating when were the angels created. And he says that we can see that perhaps in the, in the very first words in the book of Genesis, where God says, let there be light. Because when we think of light, we think of intellectual creatures. And angels have intellect and free will. And then God created, said, let there be light. And there was light and it was good. But then immediately the light was separated into day and darkness. And St. Augustine commenting on that said, perhaps we can see a reference to the book of Revelation, where it says that the serpent's tail caused one third of the stars to fall from the sky. And that was a reference to one third of the angelic creatures. So prior to his fall, we, we think of Lucifer. It's a name that means light bearer. So he was the angel that was closest to the throne or the glory of God, if you will. And then God created the angelic world, gave them a great intellect, we say, infused knowledge. So when angels were created, they were in the presence of all that they can know. There is no becoming. There is no additional learning. They just know things. And then God basically said, with the intellect that I've given you, we now choose to honor and glorify me. And then Lucifer made the statement, I will not serve. And then his decision to rebel against God reverberated through the entire angelic creation. And then one third of the angels chose to rebel against God with him. And they now refer to Lucifer as their chief. So the notion is that Lucifer was cast out of heaven to the earth along with these other fallen angels. Lucifer becomes uh, Satan or the devil. And these other fallen angels, these evil spirits, are now, um, they refer to Lucifer as their chief or their head. So they follow him. So when we speak of the devil and these other evil spirits, we're speaking of fallen angelic creatures. And their overall goal would be to get humans to join them in their rebellion against God. I apologize for a lot of my ignorance and a lot of my questions are casted out of my limited exposure to Hollywood and some of these fictitious portrayal. So with that being said, in a lot of the movies and the mainstream media or legacy media or Hollywood, they often talk about tears within hell or the tears, not like, like Dante's Inferno per se, but just a hierarchy of demons. Like, of course, the Lucifer is at the top, all these different soldiers and things like that. And even in your interviews, I know different casts or different tiers of demons get called into. And some of them have, I guess, higher power or they're more difficult to dispel or cast it away based on the word of Christ or the word of God. So in that sense, like, A, can you fact check that? And B, can demons or these evil spirits be killed or do they just get sent away back to hell or whatever realm they reside within? There is an angelic hierarchy, if you will. Going through the history of the church, many of the, uh, the great saints spoke of the nine choirs of angels, beginning with those that were closest to the throne of God. The Bible speaks of the seraphim, which means the fiery ones. So there are the seraphim, the cherubim, the thrones, the dominations, the virtues, powers, 
principalities, archangels, and angels. So when one-third of the angels fell, they fell from all nine choirs. So just as much as there was and is a hierarchy in heaven, there is a hierarchy in hell. So different demons are of a greater intellect, if you will, than others. And certainly the greatest of the fallen angels would be Satan himself. When they were cast out of heaven, they weren't cast out of creation. They still have a role to play. And that God can use these evil spirits as a part of his divine plan. And the belief is that they will have their final judgment just as we will at the end of time. So demons cannot be killed. They're literally not sent to hell during an exorcism. An exorcism would break the connection, that entry point that somebody created that brought the demonic into their life. And one can say that in an exorcism, the church is helping somebody to leave the realm of Satan and either return or go to the realm of God for the very first time. So the main focus in an exorcism is always on what God is doing. You know, a lot of people, I think, when they watch movies and whatnot, there's that fascination with demons. But again, they're pure spirits. So it's not like there's a physical death, if you will. So we would have even have to have a, a good understanding of what is an angelic nature? What is that? You know, I, you know, people always ask questions, you know, how do angels know what they know? How do they move? How many are there? There's a lot of questions that we can ask about the angelic world. But again, we have to realize that they are different than we are. You know, we exist in time and space. Angelic creatures do not exist in time and space as we know it. Yeah, it's like the idea that, like, sure, quantum physics, things like that, but for 3D, which is what we yeah. are, we can't even conceptualize and comprehend 4D creatures. It's just, it's literally impossible for us because for us to conceptualize that, we're seeking data points from the patterns of our knowledge. So in this case, it's very inadequate. How can you imagine some things that are outside of the realm of your understanding? Yeah, and that's why I think a lot of people might discount the belief in spiritual creatures, because if we can't conceptualize it according to our understanding, then either we delve into it a bit deeper or we just immediately discount it. You know, even when you read the Bible and there's images of angelic creatures, the book of Revelation, for example, when John the Apostle, you know, on the island of Patmos and an angel comes and guides him through the revelation of what is to take place at the end of time. You know, when he sees an angels, when he sees even Christ himself, it's in terms of what he can understand. Because it really is, as you suggested, really hard for humans who are 3D to conceptualize something that exists on another realm or another level, if you will. So things are brought down to an understanding. For example, when most of us picture an angel, what do we think of? It looks like a human with wings. Now, <laughs> yeah. do do angels have wings? And the answer, no. But what's the importance of wings? It shows their readiness to do the will of God. You know, the word angel means messenger. Their nature is spirit, but their function is messenger. It's even interesting that some of the names of angels that we know, think of Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, they all end in E-L. L is the ancient Canaanite name for God. 
So the names we know really is their function, like Michael means who is like God. Gabriel, man of God or strength of God. Raphael would be God's remedy. So even in their name, it's a reference to what God is doing. It's not an angelic creature acting independently of God. An angelic creature acting independently of God, we would call, you know, a demon or an evil spirit. So I want to circle back into the tabled question earlier. Speaking of the evil nature, the exorcism, like what did you mean? And can you elaborate further about what did you mean by demons or the devil can actually distort or influence humans' memories slash perceptions? Yeah, so a demon can operate on a person's memory and imagination. And it really is things to do with a physical nature, too. There can be no actual connection between a human soul and a demonic creature. The soul always remains free, no matter what antics the devil may be putting a person's body through, because the soul is considered to be the realm of God. It's kind of a sacred space, so to speak. But the devil can play on a person's memory and imagination. Again, we talked about angels as not having wings. You know, the devil doesn't have hooves and horns and a pitchfork. But those are images that we've kind of gathered through the centuries and trying to understand, you know, who or what the devil is. So people may struggle to ask, who is God? But I think we also struggle to ask, who is the devil? But again, that's why I said earlier, it's so important for us to think about the images and the thought processes that we put into our heads about the demonic, because again, the devil can use that to kind of get a grip on us. So is that how the portrayal or documentations of people levitating the air start speaking these incomprehensible or new languages of Greek, Hebrew, or some of the lost ancient languages? Is that how that works? It's not that they actually happen, but it's that the people who either witness the demonic episodes or the people who are undergoing demonic possessions, that their memory recalls are actually distorted based on the external influences. Would that be accurate? I think it can be both. So again, the devil can play on a person's memory and imagination. But let's also remember we were just talking about how Spirits don't exist in time and space as we know it, so they can they operate in ways outside of our understanding of time and space that things like levitation could occur. You know, people during exorcisms will also say that when the, the demon manifested in the person's body, you know, that the person crawled up the wall like a spider. You know, St. Thomas Aquinas has written extensively about the world of angels and demons. And one of the th comments that he makes, it's really heady, so we're delving even deeper into the water. But he would say, spirits are not contained by time and space. Purely spiritual creatures contain time and space. So we'll, I'll say that again, because it really is, spiritual creatures are not contained by time and space. They contain the time and space. You know, you and I are in a room, the room is containing us, but for a spiritual creature to be present, it's containing the room. So trying to understand a creature that does not operate according to our under understanding of time and space, I think it is possible that 
yes, things like levitation and that can be happening. But again, because of our 3D mentality, whatever word we want to use, it's hard for us to conceptualize what is actually taking place. And so we then put it in terms that we can understand. To make this more concrete, I think about like meditations or mindfulness practices that the East has been practicing for eons, like thousands of years. I myself is a psychotherapist and I also teach mindfulness. I practice meditation daily for the last three, four years. And the West is now catching up to these established ancient wisdom through a scientific method of replicating to the masses, pure research, qualitative and quantitative studies, yada, yada. And we know more about the stars in our galaxies than our own brains and the depth and what's in the ocean. So we don't even understand within this 3D realm. So of course, it makes sense that we don't quite even come remotely close to these 4D, 5D, whatever multidimensional realm we're alluding to. Um, so with what you just said, Father Vince, I have to ask. Have you personally, since you, you received 3,500 requests you alluded to earlier, and when you were the one of 12 officially designated exorcist in 2005, since then, in the last 19 years of conducting exorcism, do you have any, I'm sure they're all memorable <laughs> to a different degree, but do you have any remarkable or really memorable experiences or demonic episodes that you personally witnessed? Because we've established your credibility and we've established your innate desire to be a healthy skeptic, even against a lot of people's um, belief or conception. So I would say that the church says that the best way to learn to become an exorcist is through the apprenticeship model, to work under a priest who's been doing the ministry for a long time. So when I was appointed, being only one of 12, there really wasn't anyone to train under here in the United States. So my bishop sent me to Rome. And then there was a uh, Franciscan priest who gave me the opportunity to uh, sit in on 40 exorcisms that he performed during the three-month period that I lived in Rome. And then that allowed me to learn firsthand the church's ministry to those who were up against the forces of evil and who were seeking the help of the church. So even in those, you know, I remember the first exorcism that I sat in on, you know, you know, probably kind of like a... Uh, a medical student doing an apprenticeship, you always remember the first surgery, perhaps, that you do. But in this case, it was an elderly Italian woman who was there with her husband who was speaking about why she was possessed. And as I'm speaking with her priest that's training me, he walks into the room and he ties a plastic grocery bag onto the wall radiator. He walks back out again and he comes back in again and he puts a roll of paper towels on the small little table. So I'm watching what he's doing. I'm talking to this lady and her husband. And then the priest comes back in again and he has a purple stole over his shoulders. So he's wearing his brown Franciscan robes. A perfect purple stole, you know, stole is a cloth that a priest will wear over his shoulders as a sign of his priestly office. He has the rite of exorcism in his hand. He has holy water and he takes the holy water he blesses this lady, and as soon as the drops of water hit her forehead, she manifested. So it was no longer her. It was the demon now using her body as if it were its own. So using her mouth to speak, her ears to hear, her eyes to see. And exorcisms that I've done, people that were possessed have said that once the demon takes over their body, 
either they feel trapped in their own body, kind of being held prisoner. Some say they have no recollection of what takes place once the demon takes over. But then the uh, person's eyes rolled in the back of their head. They begin to foam at the mouth and growl and snarl, blaspheme against God. And at one point, the demon caused the person's body to levitate. So I have witnessed levitation during an exorcism. And again, I'm looking at this kind of like, what in the world is going on? Even jokingly thinking, what has my bishop gotten me into? <laughs> but even was more fascinating than these theatrics of the demonic was the response of the priest training me. So he never stopped praying. He never gave in to fear or got fixated on you know, any of these signs of demonic manifestation. He simply took his hand over when the body was levitating and put his hand on the head of the person and pushed them back down into the chair and continued to pray. And for me, that was a very teachable moment because what he was teaching me is that in an exorcism, don't focus on what the devil is doing, focus on what God is doing, namely to bring relief into the life of a person who is suffering from extraordinary demonic influence in their life. I did an exorcism, you know, just a, a couple of years ago on a person. And uh, when I was meeting with this person and her priest and a friend of hers, so this lady had been away from the church for many years, and uh, she had grown up in Mexico. I hear many horrific stories. And she told me that at the age of seven, her father began to rape her. And it continued over a five-year period. And then when she turned 12, her father turned his attention to her younger sister. So she was broken, shattered. She said she blamed God for allowing this to happen. And she turned to uh, brujas, witches, corenderos, shamans who said that they could help her put the pieces of her life back together. But she said she was only broken even more. So it was her neighbor lady that was really encouraging her to turn to the church and try to seek some help. So I'm talking with her and she's crying and then she says to me, will you help me? And I said, well, Jesus can help you. You know, in an exorcism, I tell people, if they're relying on me, we're all in trouble. But if we're relying on the power and the authority of Christ that is at work in and through the church and her ministers, that's the right mentality to have. Because even in an exorcism, Jesus is not a bystander, he's the main actor. So then she says, will you help me? I said, Jesus is going to help you. And as soon as I said that, the demon manifested. So the eyeballs turned green and her pupils became slanted like a serpent. And she's sitting in front of me and his voice looks at me in a very deep authoritative way, goes, who's he? He has no power over us. Now, the other priests with me and her friend were kind of terrified by what was happening. And I got up immediately and I went over and I just laid my hands on the head of this person and I began to pray. And these green eyeballs are staring out at me, cursing me out and everything you can imagine. And then I just blessed the person with holy water. And then this demonic voice starts screaming and shrieking and the person's body falls to the ground. I did not do an exorcism then. You know, exorcisms cannot be performed on somebody against their will. A person has to request help. Just because somebody is possessed doesn't mean they're manifesting all the time. Something will trigger the manifestation, such as the elements of our faith. So when it comes to holy water, the reference really is into baptism. 
by which we have put on Christ and have become a new creation. It's a reference to Paul's letter to the Romans where he says, Are you unaware that we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So everything the church does in an exorcism is pointing to something greater, and that something greater is Christ himself. So blessing with the holy water. So the following week, I scheduled to do an exorcism. You know, exorcisms take place in a church or a sacred space. I jokingly tell people they're never in an abandoned house on a dead-end street at midnight during a thunderstorm. That always makes right. for a great movie. But the devil doesn't choose where he will be defeated. The church will make that determination. So we're all back, you know, in a church in the city of Indianapolis. The prayers begin. I bless the person with holy water, again, reminding ourselves of baptism. The green eyes are back again immediately. And the demon looks at me and goes, you can't get rid of us. We've been here too long and you're not strong enough. And then began to laugh and, you know, all that kind of hysteria. And then the ritual of exorcism, after the blessing of holy water, there's the litany of the saints prayer. And then after the litany of the saints, the reading of Psalms out of the Old Testament. And then gospel accounts of Jesus casting out demons. And even the prologue of John's gospel, the word became flesh. And then there is the uh, laying on the hands of the head of the person, uh, asking God to deliver them. There's the insufflation prayer or the breathing on the face of the person. It recalls Jesus in the upper room where he breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. It's the recognition that wherever the Holy Spirit is present, an unclean spirit cannot remain. And then I did the insufflation prayer, lightly breathed on the face of this person with the demon manifesting. The chair the person was sitting in flew back 10 feet, hit the wall, and there was a, squeak, a shriek and a scream. And the lady came flying out of the chair and kind of collapsed on the floor. Myself and the other priest lifted her up, and she begins praising and glorifying God in a very loud voice. How God loves her unconditionally. She's worthy you know, you name it. And there literally is a glow about her. And the glow, the best way that I can try to explain that would be many people have seen a painting of a saint that always has a halo around their head. That halo is not their light. It's the light of Christ radiating in and through them. So much did they unite their lives with Christ that they're literally on fire, if you will, with Christ. And so in this case... One of the things that I've always learned in exorcism to know that a demon truly has been cast out is to look for this glow. Again, not their glow, but the glow of God that's now coming through them because the darkness of the demon has now been cast out. So you're saying that the demonic presence or demonic possession can stay dormant for X amount of years until they're activated or triggered or revealed by certain sacred or holy elements? Yes. And that's the notion that technically, when somebody is possessed, it doesn't mean that the demon is literally inside of them. We use that terminology. To be possessed means that one has done something through an entry point that's allowing that evil spirit to contain them. So they're now within the realm of evil rather than in the realm of God. And then exorcism breaks that containment. And even more importantly than casting the demon out is to invite God in. 
Again, it's that recognition that where the Holy Spirit is present, an unclean spirit cannot remain. So again, it goes back to that nature of an angelic creature, good or fallen, that they're not controlled by time and space. So when somebody is possessed, it literally means that a demon is containing them. This is mind-blowing. I have so many uh, other <laughs> questions. So I want to try my best. I feel so inadequate because I just don't know enough about the spiritual angelic realm, demons or otherwise. But I do see a lot of similar thread lines between mental illness, which is schizo, multi-personal disorder, some combination thereof. Because mental illness also stays dormant. And according to the most recent clinical literature, we speculate that about 20 to 30% of mental illnesses is family or genetically related. At the same time, a lot of us live with these dormant mental illness genetics that are, they stay dormant, or in this case, inactive, until they're triggered by stress. Literally, you can live your entire life, let's say you're 55, very competent, high-power attorney, went to Harvard Law School. I'm actually speaking of a former patient of mine last year or two years ago at my forensic placements. I dealt with a lot of individuals and patients with schizo and severe, severe mental illnesses and who committed crime under psychosis. And this individual, until she was 43, I believe, she went to Harvard Law School, very reputable, extremely competent power attorney in New York City. And one day, she just had a psychotic episode. She was hallucinating. She wasn't herself. She doesn't remember the experience. And she ended up having like a shootout with like 12 police officers outside of her home in suburban New York. And at that point, it was point of no return. Her once mental illness clinically has been activated. It's, it's with you forever. It's irreversible. And I sort of sense that similar connections with demonic possessions or this container of this higher than 3D presence that we're talking about. Any thoughts there? I don't know if that even made any sense. It does. And I was thinking, you know, with a demonic episode, once it's out, it can be dealt with. So one can say that if somebody is possessed, that can be reversed. So maybe when it comes to a mental health issue, maybe that's not exactly the case. But again, I think initially on, you're right that a lot of the symptoms that people see in those suffering from mental health issues are also some of the same ones that the church says can be signs of possible demonic possession. Yeah, I want to clarify so I don't get canceled. I'm not comparing mental illness with demonic possessions by any means. I'm just talking about the dormant and the activation nature. And to your point, Father Vince, you're right. With demonic possessions upon activations, it can be cured by the word of God, the spirit of Holy Spirit, spirit of Jesus. However, as of now in 2023, mental illness has no cure but it can be contained through medications, pharmaceutical approach, a lot of psychotherapy, often both approaches simultaneously. So I just want to make that connections. Um, and here's another weird through line. My brain is going some interesting directions today. So speaking of the people with mental illnesses or certain disorders like uh, psychopathy, we call it psychopath or sociopathic tendencies, we call it sociopath. Uh, we use them very loosely, but a lot of serial killers, because true crime, unfortunately, is one of the most popular genres now ever. And a lot of serial killers are psych like they have psychopathy. 
which is the diagnosis for a uh, psychopath. These people lack remorse. To them, uh, killing someone is as natural as eating an apple. It's genetic makeups. Um, so in a weird way, they're not subhumans, but they don't, they're not wired the way we humans do. They don't receive gratifications. When they engage in altruistic behaviors, they don't feel good. When they are loving, they don't feel good. They don't feel empathy. They just don't have these positive emotions. And these are all facts where they have to resort to extreme violent measures that that's when they feel alive. That's why it's, it's literally they only feel alive when they're doing these atrocious crimes. You talked about soul is in this unreachable realm because it's dictated by God where these demons and spirits cannot even penetrate because it's a sacred place. How do you view individuals like these extremely small subset of human populations that were born with these genetic makeups that make them psychopath and sociopath who end up committing atrocious crime, even now through social media? This is a very, very dark realm, but with social media, now these sociopath and psychopath can coordinate together to commit these atrocious crimes together. How do you view that realm and what I just shared? Yeah, I would say that you know, we speak of evil as a reality and represented by the devil and these other fallen angels. But we shouldn't be so quick to attribute all evil to the devil. Again, we have personal choice. So it is possible that there are people that have some inherent evil about them, and that evil would be the fact that they don't operate or function in, in what we would say is normal human behavior or activity. You know, we should have some sense of empathy for our fellow human person. There should be a level of love. And you're right, for some people, for whatever reason, that is not at the core of who they are. But I would say that in those cases, we need to make sure that we're not blaming the devil for everything. Many people might be familiar with the statement, well, the devil made me do it. You know, <laughs> the devil doesn't make us do anything. You know, the devil can propose, but he can't impose. We are all responsible for the actions that we take or the actions that we fail to take that we should. But we shouldn't just think that somehow we're all victims of the devil. So we shouldn't attribute more to the devil than the devil is due. We also have to look at our own personal choices and responsibility. Yes, evil is something real. And evil isn't just something about humanity's inhumane treatment of one another. The church, again, would say that evil is personified in what we call the devil and his angels. But also evil is something that we as humans can make the choice for based on our own free will. Yeah, I'm very big on personal agencies and personal accountability. I'm a U.S. Army veteran myself. So I do understand that we have to own up to our own health and we are responsible for our actions. And it's the idea that when bad things happen to us, it's not our fault. Yet it's our responsibility because we still have to carry the torch of hope or this life we've been given with. In that sense, Father Vince, I feel like this is a very fitting question for you to ask. And it's an uncomfortable question, but I think it's very, very important where a lot of Christians, Catholics or otherwise, some of them really believe in prosperity gospel. They really believe that just pray about everything. I call it over-spiritualization. Oh, you have a cancer? You don't feel good? Just pray about it. 
Oh, you're not improving. You're not praying hard enough. It must be your weak faith. I hate those because it's, as you talked about in the beginning, it's so disturbing of these, our congregations and believers. And a lot of people may die and fall serious illness because of these tendency towards over-spiritualization in some ways. What are your thoughts as a priest of going on 34, 35 years of priesthood and someone that is very intellectual, but also very grounded, also very full of empathy? Because your mission statement that you happen to choose a vehicle, well, you didn't choose, your bishop gave it to you, but the vehicle of change through exorcism lens. But what do you think about some of the subset Christians that have these unhealthy and unsustainable beliefs? Yeah, your question made me think of Job in the Old Testament. If people know the story of Job, you know, he was blessed in many ways. And then God permits Satan to afflict him. There's a lot of people who believe that, you know, if you have a good job, a big fat bank account, a nice house and a nice car, that it's a sign that you're truly blessed by God. That's that gospel of prosperity. You know, I, I would think that St. Francis of Assisi, who lived at the beginning of the 13th century, would not agree with that statement. Even Pope Francis, the fact that he took the name Francis, again, that notion of poverty, really when it comes to things of this world, but to be rich in the things that truly matter. And in the story of Job, you know, he loses everything, and his wife says to him, curse God and die. Meaning, obviously, you had all these blessings because you were favored by God, and now that they're gone, obviously, you've lost favor with God. And I love Job's response, where he beats his breast and he says, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Meaning, if things be good, I glorify God. If they be bad, I glorify God. My personal circumstances mean nothing when it comes to God's rightful place in my life. And I think, you know, that question of the gospel of prosperity makes me think about what we were talking about earlier is, you know, what concept of God do people really have? You know, I think sometimes we have this notion that God is a puppet, and we have God on the strings, and we can get what we want from God. Or when people say they have a, a miracle, that they were cured of cancer. I certainly think that God can do whatever God wills to do. But when people speak of miracles, you know, how do you respond to people who say, well, you got one, why didn't I? You know, your child got to live, but my child died. That's a really dangerous place to start going because, again, you're saying, well, obviously I got the miracle because I'm a good person. God favors me. You didn't because you're a bad person. The reality is that there are a lot of bad things that happen in this world to a lot of good people. And I would say that, from my perspective, God does not cause the pain and suffering in our lives. God gives us the strength that we need to go through that. You know, in the Psalm 23, you know, walking through the valley of darkness, God never promised that we wouldn't walk through darkness, but he did promise that we would not be alone, that he would be with us at our side. And he also promised that the darkness would not be permanent. Because when we believe the darkness in our lives is permanent, I think that's when we abandon all hope. And, you know, as a priest for, you know, 30 plus years, a lot of times at a funeral, people will say to me, Father, as difficult as this is, I don't know how I would get through it if it wasn't for my faith in God. Mm. So again, it's the notion 
that we as humans are going to experience pain and suffering in this world. But it is our relationship with God that gives us strength and helps us to make sense out of it. You know, Catholics would say that there is redemptive value in suffering. You know, people might walk into a Catholic church and say, why do you have a crucifix? Why is Christ still on the cross? Don't you believe that he's been raised? But the purpose of a crucifix is to remind people that in the midst of our pain and suffering, when we look at what Christ has done for us, there is redemptive value in suffering. Otherwise, Jesus on the cross makes no sense. So what Christ has done for us on the cross allows us to approach the tree of life. And in that approach to the tree of life, we no longer have to worry about what the devil is trying to do to us. Yeah, I appreciate that in-depth response. And yeah, I think it's really important, like going back to the idea that when we talked about before the recording, when you point a finger at the moon, don't get caught up in the finger, focus on the moon. In this case, of course, Jesus and everything we talked about. So I personally define God as love. And because love requires relationships and God works to relationship is how I truly believe. How do you personally define who God is, Father Vince, given the discussion we just had? I would say that I agree with your definition that God is love. John even mentions that in his gospel. God is love and love needs to exist in community. That's why from a Christian perspective, we speak about the Trinity, that God exists as a trinity of persons united in love. And I think the goal of the Christian life is to discover this love in this life so that we can unite ourselves with love itself in the life to come. One might say that our ultimate goal is to share in the indwelling of the persons of the Trinity. So Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Spirit are united by love, and for us to unite ourselves to God, love has to be found within us. And again, if you think of the devil, he's the exact opposite of love. There is the hatred. And therefore, hatred cannot unite itself to God. Only love can. And I think when it comes to salvation, we just have to give God something, something small. I think of, you know, the good thief on the cross. You know, we don't know why he's being crucified. But he says to Jesus, you know, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He doesn't even ask for salvation, probably doesn't believe that he's worthy of it. But Jesus is able to look into his heart, and I believe, to see the goodness, the love within him, and says, this day you will be with me in paradise. So to me, to unite ourselves to God means that love must be found within us. And I think the devil works to destroy love and to spread hatred. And I think the work of any Christian would be to spread love. And it goes back to what we said at the very beginning, why the importance of exorcism, why being public? It's a sign that the church is listening. And who do you listen to? People that you love and people that you care about. And that's making sure that everybody knows that they matter in the eyes of God, and because they matter in the eyes of God, they matter to us. So. Yeah, your definition of God is one that I think I would agree with wholeheartedly. God is love, and our goal is to discover love in this life so that we can unite ourselves to God, who is united in love for all eternity. 
I think that responds the hopeful message you just said. And my question is very relevant because we live in an ever more expansively polarizing, dividing country politically, socioeconomically, income inequality, whatever language you want to slap on. That, it's a very non-exhaustive, but the list is getting longer. And myself included, I think many of us grapple with hopelessness, losing hope in humanity, because there's so much hatred, so much anger, so much abuse, so much inhumane treatments are happening. At the same time, I say this in part for myself, because I'm getting more and more pessimistic about the world. At the same time, there is more love and there is more good than bad. How do we know that? Because the world hasn't burnt out yet. The world is burning down, but it hasn't burnt because there is still counter forces that checks hatred and anger at bay. At least I really believe that. So I appreciate how hopeful and optimistic that message is. And reminds me of a quote. It says something like, I love quotes because they stick, mm -hmm. where pessimists are often right, but optimists change the world. And I sense the same hopeful message from what you just shared. Yeah. I remember uh, about a week or two ago, I was reading about the oldest woman in the world. And she's in France. She just turned 115 years old. And they asked her the secret to longevity. And I loved her response. She said, I remove toxic people from my life. <laughs> you know, we don't all agree on everything in life, but I think we should all try to find some common ground. And I think the common ground that we should find is that we are all God's children. We're all God's children. God has created all of us. And I am an optimist because I believe that there's more that we share in common than what we disagree with. You know, even in the area of Christianity, you know, there's so many different divisions within Christianity, and maybe we debate one another on theological points. But I would say that what we share in common, namely Christ at the core of our beliefs, is what we should focus on. You know, when I think of different Christian traditions and denominations, whatever term people want to use, I think of children within the same family. So I have eight brothers and sisters. You know, so we all grew up in the same household. We all had a different relationship with our parents. One wasn't better than the other. It was just different. But what we had in common is that we were a family. And I think if we as humans can recognize that we are a human family, we are God's children. And maybe there are things that we do differently to express our love for God and how we live out that relationship. But those differences should be okay, because again, what's at the core is really the same, or should be the same. Wow, that message is so powerful. The church bell rang again at the perfect timing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, I echo that tenfold, because we all are born the same way, we all eat, sleep the same way, and we are going to die the same way. And these are absolute statements, at least until we figure out immortality. I don't even know if that's possible, yada, yada, yada. We're definitely towards coming to the end of the episode, and I want to be respectful of your time, Father Vince. But in terms of love and hatred, I must ask a personal question that I think a lot of people are curious about beyond your container of being an exorcist, just the priesthood. Because as a priest, you have to be abstinent from sex and a lot of temptations. I myself, a lot of people thought I was crazy, but I recommitted to abstinence from sex for three years with my now fiance 
uh, because I had this perpetual guilt about engaging in sexual intercourse before marriage, yada yada. And we both created systems, and we were we joking around. We were hermits, and we were like monk like. We will hold <laughs> hands and cuddle. That's it. So my question is, Father Vince, how do you personally choose love over temptations, especially from lust, sexuality, fame? Because you're very widely covered, and we do live in this current social proof era. Yeah, when it comes to you, to mention fame, you know, I've I've never watched or read any interview that I've ever <laughs> given, and it began because you know it's not about me. To me, it's it's really about God, and when it comes to discipline and leading, living a life worthy of God's calling, it really is discipline. So you talked about the discipline in your own life with your fiance. So for me. You know, how do we not put ourselves in situations? So I don't put myself in any situation where the temptation would be to give in to sin. Mm. So it's about removing those. You know, the human person has the capacity to choose to do something or choose not to do it. You know, we're not animalistic in nature, and I don't say that in a degrading way. But again, the human person does have the capacity to say no, and to live by limitations. It's also the recognition that if God gives one a calling, we also have to believe that God will equip somebody with the strength that they need to live out that calling. So to me, it really is a reliance on the power of God in my life to remain true to my vocation. That makes sense. When the calling is larger than yourself, it acts as like a natural anchor or grounding mechanism plus faith plus discipline. Yeah, because if it's, if it's just about me, yeah, I'm in trouble. But again, relying on the power of God. Because again, God is present in all of our lives. It's a matter of whether or not we want to choose to recognize that God is present. You know, the great line in Scripture, you know, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. I think it's found there in Revelation in chapter 3. Jesus doesn't kick the door down and say, here I am to save the day. We have to invite him in. And when we invite him in, he will transform our lives. And so again, no matter what vocation somebody has, you know, to me, the word vocation means a calling from God. We do what we do because God has called us to do it. You know, right out of high school, I, I went to Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. And after two years, I responded, I believe that God was calling me to the priesthood. So I went to the seminary in southern Indiana. But after three years in the seminary, I quit for two years. So I thought, well, I don't know if this is really what God wants me to do. But then two years later, I went back. It's the notion, I really believe that this is what God wanted me to do. And people always say, well, what about getting married or having a family? You know, look at all that you're giving up. And my response would be, but if God is calling me to do this, then I have to be true to that if I'm going to be true to God. And then whatever sacrifices I'm going to have to make fail in comparison to the sacrifices that Christ have al has already made for me. So again, what I stand to gain is much greater than anything I stand to lose. But again, it's a matter of looking at it from the perspective of God rather, from, rather than the perspective of the world. And I think all of us can move to that notion of empathy, and love if we look at things from the perspective of God rather than from the perspective of this world. 
Yeah, it's like the parables of talents. God gives different people different sets of talents. And I have so many other questions, but uh, <laughs> just this is just such a fascinating and such a such a really cool opportunity for me to speak with you and ask about all these really intricate and I think um, not very popular, um, I guess, topics. But to me, this was very, very, very um, thought-provoking and it made me really think more. And you have a very radio-friendly, soothing meditation voice. So I felt very grounded throughout this conversation as well. And for me, the, the, the main thrust of our conversation today really wasn't on exorcism or the devil, but it really is, what is the role and place of God in our lives today? And again, I think if we can really answer that question, then ultimately the devil is nothing to fear. Because if we're living in the manner that God calls us to live and we're giving God his rightful place in our lives, then somehow everything will fall into place. This is why I love universal truth, because there's a few subsets of truth that are ubiquitous and universal. Like even in Stoicism, they talk about you don't have to believe in God per se, but you need to believe in a higher being that's not self. Otherwise, your ego becomes a new God to circle back to the beginning of conversations. And whether it's Hinduism, Muslim, Islam, Christianity, whatever, I do feel like there's this universal truth that just don't always only believe in yourself. Because when you fail, which you will, your life gets destroyed and despair happens, depressions, all these things happen. But when you surrender to a higher being that you and I believe that we call God, it alleviates a lot of the suffering. Because suffering is part of life. That's what Nietzsche talked about too. At the same time, post-traumatic growth and a lot of profound lessons and teachers rise out of pain and these um, hardships that we all go through. Before I roll out the red carpet for you, Father Vince, to end today's amazing, amazing conversation, I know you don't care about red carpets, but it's just a cool <laughs> language that I, <laughs> to make you feel a little bit be better. Do you have any central message or parting message um, for everyone after our extremely unique and insightful and very spiritual in the way we define spirituality, which is our journey to oneself and God? Do you have any central message or parting messages for for folks? Yeah, I think the message I would give is regardless of what somebody believes about our conversation today, you know, maybe somebody is a, you know, God-centered person, maybe somebody is questioning that, maybe agnostic or an atheist, but hopefully our conversation today affords people the opportunity to really reflect on and think about what they truly and ultimately believe. So I think for me, the hope for this conversation is that it will just cause people to really think about their lives and our connection with one another. And, you know, does God have a role to play? Is, is evil a reality? But hopefully it will help us to uh, connect with one another. You know, you talked about polarization. We're divided in so many ways. I would hope that our conversation doesn't divide people even more but really allow us to have a, a good, healthy discussion on life itself. Your humility, your compassion, your curiosity shine through the screen. And I think I see a glow on top of your head. <laughs> if I'm not, <laughs> that maybe might, it's that might be my baldness. <laughs> <laughs> or, the, or the shampoo that you use, um, <laughs> all of the above. But yeah, for me, some of my major takeaways is just for us to ponder and for myself to ponder about 
what or who is God in my life and what and who is the devil in my life. Mm-hmm. And for me to define what they are and then orient it or operate my life around what, what and who God is. In this case, love and relationships or meaningful relationships. So yeah, without further ado, I want to roll out the metaphorical red carpet for you, Father Vince. Where can people connect with you? Uh, maybe not request any exorcist episode since you're already dealing with 3500 a year <laughs> but just for them to check more out some of your expertise because one of the core ethos of the show is for them to discover more after the interview after the conversations if they feel more inspired and intrigued by their curiosity yeah i welcome people to send me emails if they're looking for maybe a little guidance or direction certainly i can't connect with everybody who reaches out to me directly. But if people send me an email, I always respond. So I have an ex- I have an email address called exorcismministry at gmail.com. People have questions, you know, it's amazing to me the number of non-exorcism related emails that I've been getting too. Just people that are seeking maybe some spiritual guidance or direction, people that have experienced a traumatic event in their life. And they're just trying to make sense out of what it is that they're going through. And I think what they're really looking for is just someone to listen, to let them know that they're, they're not alone and that they still matter, that they're still relevant. The core foundation of depression is loneliness. You feel like the cardinal personality traits and really dig deep. And I will say this, this one quick caution, probably Twitter might be the least efficient way because unfortunately somebody has created a fake Twitter account in my name that they're using to manipulate people for the sake of the almighty dollar. Mm. And I've not been successful in getting that shut down. So I will say the parish website or the email address would be the best way to, to connect with me. Okay. Sounds good. Um, but yeah, Father Vince, I really, really appreciate your just amazing insights. And I learned a lot today and it's going to take me for the rest of the day to just <laughs> process and digest and hopefully uh, we can have a follow-up conversation. It's not about exorcism, but just about determinism, free will, a lot of these really heady topics I, I really, really enjoy, and some of your own philosophical belief within the Christianity branch because there's so many different, like you said, different children with different beliefs, but we're all under the umbrella of God's profound love. Um, yeah, so I really appreciate your time today, Father Vince. Yep, you're welcome. My pleasure. Just like I don't know why Father Vincent agreed to be on the show. I don't always know why I have all these listeners who are tuning in, but the amount of gratitude is truly inarticulable. And if you enjoyed this episode, if this episode intrigued your further curiosity to seek more, to discover more in your own life, I ask you to share this episode with one friend. That's how you encourage me to keep this space pure and also to keep seeking out fascinating people with deep integrity to share more about their lived experiences, expertise, and their lessons. And as always, I will include all of Father Vincent's information in the show notes, as I alluded to earlier. And always hope to see you again in the next week's train of discovery. Thank you for listening.